Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Finn Barnes and Brett Burson of First Round Capital, dear friends to, of the firm. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So Finn, to put you on the spot, what would you say is Brett Burson's superpower? <laughs> I would say uh, two things, uh, pace, pace of execution and uh, creativity driven by a deep, deep understanding of the customer. Yeah. And the customer here is the founder. Founder. Not the LP. No, no, not the LP. LP is the shareholder. Yes. Yeah, the the founder is the the customer. So First Round has pioneered a lot of, uh, you know, uh, what they call community as platform. A lot of stuff about just how do you serve value to the customer. I'm curious uh, how you think this has evolved at First Round over time. So, Brett, you've been there, what, a decade? 11 years. Over a decade. Um, Why don't you trace a little bit about how the philosophy of value add to the founder has evolved and also just... Over time, what has added the value? Have founders' needs changed in, in the last decade? And how have you, uh, as a firm, uh, evolved to meet those needs? Yeah, so I think if you if you go back, the first round's about 15 years old. I think the, the firm was sort of founded around essentially sort of an arbitrage opportunity, um, where if you look at early stage venture 15 years ago, you, know, you could raise a few hundred thousand dollars or maybe four or five million dollars, which would be considered a Series A at the time. And there wasn't institutions sort of occupying that sort of space that existed in between. And at the same time, this is sort of all this stuff is, I I think, somewhat obvious sort of in retrospect. But you had a a number of trends that were sort of happening, right? The collapsing cost of of creating a startup. You have so many of these new levels of abstraction. So you went from rolling your own servers to leveraging AWS. You had cloud and mobile, which made a whole new generation of companies very capital efficient to build. And so you had a ton of things that meant... For a million or two million dollars, you could actually get a lot done. And um, and at the time, there wasn't there wasn't sort of what we consider seed, pre-seed. The entire category didn't exist. So the the firm was sort of started with the insight that hey, what if we created a, a real institution sort of in this in this category? Uh, we think there's an unmet need, and 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 you know we want to sort of close the gap there. And so the first handful of years of the firm was sort of organized around that insight. I think as as sort of the the firm kind of started to execute, a couple things we realized uh, that the the first sort of when I joined and Finn and I joined actually as an interns in two thousand eight. Wow, kind of, kind of crazy. Intern to GP. One of the things that we started to talk a lot about, and I think Josh was really the driving force behind this, was the insight that uh, venture is fundamentally an anti network effects business, right? Um, that most of the value that's delivered as, as a venture investor exists in sort of one-on-one interactions between the partner and the individual. And so the more that you invest, um, your, divide, your time gets divided up, and so you're less valuable to each individual company. So I started to spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, well, how do you take an anti-network effects business and make it into more of a network effects business where as you invest in more companies, the value to each member of that community can actually grow? And that's when we started to sort of pull on threads of getting people together. And so one example was we, we had CEO summits, which I think most firms now have a way to bring everyone together every year. But at the time, it sort of wasn't a thing that, that in 07 and 08, a lot of people were doing. So we bring all of our founders together every year. 
for all sorts of uh, opportunities for lear- learning and relationship building. Hey, by the way, I, I see that as a general trend. It's almost like a gingerbread approach where you pioneer something, everyone else copies it, and now you're on to the next thing. <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of people are inspired by some of the things that we've, that we've done, and we're just, I think, at a different point in the cycle, but it feels fundamentally differently today than it did than it did 11 years ago. And I think a lot of our philosophy is to focus on something, do it well, and every year decide, is it something high impact for our customer? Can we do it better than anyone else? And are we providing something that nobody else can provide? I think over time, when we see that other people are doing things, a lot of times we say, okay, somebody else is doing it. We don't need to do it anymore. Right. Like what's an example um, of that? Um, so we, we used to sort of do a CEO summit. Right now we don't. Um, and maybe we'll bring it back in the, in the, in the future, but we sort of started with a small CEO summit with like 50 people and it scaled over 10 years to about 700 people at the SF Jazz Center. And we started to do that over time and sort of found, find ourselves saying every, you know, we would talk to, we would talk to our customer and they would say, I have seven CEO summits to go to this year because every shareholder of mine is inviting me to a CEO summit, which kind of started to seem quite, quite crazy to us. Um, and so we've been kind of changing that and reinventing it in a lot of ways. But but that, I think that's like a, a, a very sort of good example of of sort of that type of phenomenon. I also think, I also think with that, the sometimes it's stopping doing something. And other times it's really focusing on how it's different. So I think we did CEO Summit and we saw the value of that. And then we said, well, who else is in the business that needs to be served in the same way? And then we had a CTO Summit. And then as we evolved the format, we went from the classic sort of TED-style talk across the course of the day with some networking sessions to ultimately having much more unconferences yeah. with both CEOs and CTOs. And so I think uh, we also did things where we opened it up to the whole community rather than just to CEOs of companies where we had invested in order just to get the best people in the room and to continue to build community that way. Yeah. And so I think there's both. Sometimes it's something where we say, this exists, therefore we don't need to provide it. Other times we say this exists in a certain format or a certain approach and we can provide it in, in this different way. I think our um, like our approach to talent is that way in terms of how I think people think about talent as sort of we're going to have this approach of here's someone who's going to be a recruiter for you. We're going to embed them in your company. They're going to deliver. And I think we've approached that in a pretty different way in terms of saying we're going to think through the process of recruiting, the process of building a pipeline, funnel, job descriptions, all these things and support the company as they do that in order to deliver those first hires. How have your customers' needs changed in 2010, 2015, you were almost at 2020? How, how have you seen their needs evolve? One thing that we've noticed is that needs of founders and companies are all over the map. And I think that, you know, if, if you survey founders, they'll generally say, I either want customer introductions, talent, or follow-on capital, and that's really all I want. But I think when you really start to get together with someone and listen to what's going on in their business, I think there's like 17 different things that people want at varying points of time. And I think one of the reasons why we've chosen to really create a whole suite of different experiences, products, services, and and quite a large team, given we still are true series seed investors where we're writing one or $2 million checks or sort of what have you. And so I think what, what we found is actually that if you're a first-time founder, you're a second-time founder. If you're building a B2B company versus a B2B versus a B2C company. If you're building a, a transactional sale go-to-market enterprise software company versus a very complex enterprise sort of uh, product or enterprise sale that takes a year versus a week. Each one of these different things, depending on where you are in the life cycle, whatever sort of top of mind for the founder or their team is entirely different. And so I think one of our 
the things that's been most interesting is that we're always asking ourselves, okay, well, what does the customer want? And can we get rid of things? Because we'd like to focus on just three things and, and not 30 things. Right. I think the, the challenge is that everybody wants different things. And so I don't think that there's a singular, oh, if you just help me raise my next round or I just need to hire these two people, then you just kind of have it all solved. And so I, I'm, I'm not sure it's easy to sort of sum up, nor do I think in the last five or seven years, like the fundamental needs of the customer has changed. The thing that's sort of the, the through line of it all is that I, I really subscribe to the, the idea that most problems are people problems. And I was talking with a friend about this uh, and who's also a founder of a first-round company. And I think what you realize is, is the more time that you spend with founders, most problems tend to boil down to the way in which two people connect or interface with one another, getting rid of someone on the team or adding someone on the team. And so I think that, you know, that's sort of the thing that has stayed, that has stayed the same over the last 10 years. I know you spent a ton of time in terms of, of coaching founders sort of focusing on that stuff then. Yeah, no. So I think if, if you think about all the needs as being quite diverse and, and depending on stage and focus and size of team, et cetera, the, the thing that I think is consistent is you might call it the, the founder's desire to win. Yeah. But I think if you really dig into what that is, it's the founder's desire to grow. Right. And it's, it's not just growing their company, but it's growing as a person, helping uh, become a better leader, uh, a better solver of the problems facing their business, but also helping those that they hire and work with, as Brett was just talking about, with the, how they connect with people, uh, helping their employees grow and helping yeah. their team get better and move faster. Uh, and when you think about if all problems are people problems, if you can work with founders to bring out their best yeah. and to help them access the information and context that they need when they face any challenge in their business and then be able to pull that together, look at it and say, because of all this information, this shared understanding of the problem I'm facing, how others have solved similar problems in the past, I believe the optimal thing for me and for my company is to do the following. And then to have a partner that can push them on those things uh, to really have them go even one or two levels deeper. Uh, and, and further, I think that that relationship that you build is something that I think while the, the specific way you draw out someone's best is different per founder, yeah. that high level responsibility of a partner. And when you partner with someone, totally. what you're taking on is the obligation to bring out their best in every single situation. And I think I think knowing that the sum total of that ability will lead to the best outcome for the company. Totally. And what do, what do you think, you know, having done this, you know, 11 years or so, what, what do you think is the unique expertise that you've generated relative to your other partners, some of whom have been doing it longer, or other investors uh, in, in the market? How do you think about how you approach things differently? Or, you're, you're, you know, work with that generalist for this, but work with me for this. And Brett, feel free to jump in if as you see fit. Yeah, so I think, I think that there's, you know, you could point to certain aspects of, whether it's operating experience or, or companies that I've worked with, I've certainly learned a ton. But I think that the, the fundamental thing that I bring to the table, that I bring to a founder, is believing that the best answer to any question facing the business lies within the founder, yeah. but also believing that they don't always know it. Yeah. And so you have to help draw it out. Totally. And actually focusing on getting very, very good at that. Do you see yourself as a psychologist? Or the job is like in, in, in some ways, right? And it's and it's about it's a process of self discovery for that founder in that moment, um, and it is a hundred percent of the time. If I think I have the answer, that answer is wrong, right? But it's it's understanding when the founder can go further, um, and I think also thinking of them as a person yeah. versus 
the CEO of this company where you're an investor can, can really help open up an understanding of what, what they are driving towards, what motivates them, uh, the people problems that they may be facing, the way they're thinking about their team, the expertise of that team, where are they hopeful? Where do they have doubts helping them run towards the problems rather than away and, and putting everything. The other thing is just to put everything in context, right? Like we, these decisions are incredibly stressful and, and fraught, but at the same time, for the most part, these are not life or death decisions. And if you can give yourself a little bit of space and back up a little bit and think through um, the, the situation relative to your goals and aspirations, I think you can, you can usually make a better decision. And so I think for me, the, the specific types of founders where, where I become a, a really good partner for them are the ones that have that perspective around their desire to grow as an individual, as well as their desire to build an enduring company that wins totally. in a market. Yeah. And so given that we've been talking about, you know, a lot of different types of founders, a lot of different types of needs, depending on their company, how do you two, as, as a person building out this firm, think about where, where you focus, where, where you build your products? You could say, Hey, we're going to double down for this type of founder. We're going to double down at this. We're going to, it's going to be all about talent. We're going to have, you know, a team of 10 talent people, but you, you seem to be dividing it up between di- different baskets. H- how do you, prioritize what's most important to add value to and, and then think about delivering it? I, I think it's sort of in, in, in two buckets. One is we kind of have this, this sort of idea of creating, a, sort of executing a barbell strategy. And so going back to sort of what we were talking about at the beginning, there's a lot of things that we do that we think actually get better the more people that are involved yes. in it. So, so we build a lot of software that, that connects all the different members of our community. So if you're a product product manager at a first round back company, you can learn from all sorts of other yep, products. Yeah, you have internal Quora or something like that. And it's that. kind of like that meets LinkedIn so you can yep. search all the other product managers. Cool. So, so we want to invest in, in, in a lot of those types of things that fundamentally get better as they get bigger. Um, and then the other bucket of things is things that we think can have a huge positive impact on a company in a very small amount of time. And basically, over the last few years, what we've tried to do is edit away everything that exists in the center. And, and I think that that's, it's a little bit opposite because I think most venture firms, everything they do is in the center, meaning it's in many ways not particularly scalable. And on the other end of the spectrum, not particularly impactful because, you know, take something like different ways that you approach recruiting, I think is very tricky. It can be hugely impactful, but takes tens and tens or hundreds of hours to have true impact. And a lot of times if if, if different approaches to sort of scaling things, it, it tends not to be that useful. But yet, so many firms spend so much time on recruiting because their customer asks for recruiting a lot. And so I think most things tend to fall into sort of that that sort of center bucket. Like in some ways, a traditional CEO summit might even fall into that. It's kind of scalable, but not really. It's kind of impactful, but depending on how it's executed, not really. And so I think from from when we think about the portfolio of things that we want to create for our customer, we're trying to push things on those two extremes at any given point in time. And so like one example is is we have this program we call Experts in Residence, and it allows for people deep in a given domain to pair with a given company on a specific problem. And so one example is is um, we have somebody that focus on uh, marketing and product marketing and go-to-market positioning. Her name's Ariel. We've worked together for years, and she's just astonishingly good. And basically what she does is she pairs with a founder over the course of a number of weeks, maybe an hour or two every week, to basically get a company's go-to-market positioning very sharp. So like, how are you describing the product? Who is the audience? Why is it different? Sort of all of this type of stuff. And what we found is that's kind of that magical thing where, you know, somebody leaves five hours of work with 
the business, the way they're describing the business, like fundamentally moved forward. And it's just incredibly meaningful. But it's not like you need to spend 300 hours kind of doing that to kind of move the needle. And so we're a lot of the strategy in terms of where we invest is about pushing things to the edge. Um, another example is for a number of years, we've been building this thing out we call Pitch Assist, which uh, prepares people for Series A capital raising. And maybe we spend, you know, that whole program that lasts four to six weeks anywhere in the low end of 20 to 50 hours with a given company. Now, in some ways, that's a lot. But in in that case, you don't actually need to scale. You don't need to do that 600 times a year. Yeah. If you think about core companies raising a Series A at any given point in time, there's probably like one or two. And in that case, you can have this enormous, this enormously positive impact because Right. If, if somebody uh, is able to get a better partner for their business at the Series A, that could be hugely meaningful. And so I, I think a lot of our prioritization is, um, is sort of on other uh, – is, is sort of on those two polar ends of the extreme. And then I think the, the magic that we've sort of been able to develop um, in terms of our entire team over many years is the desire and willingness to pull on a thread for a very long period of time until it leads to something interesting. And I think – there's different ways to prioritize like this sort of idea of a barbell strategy. Another is the thing we were talking about earlier, which is, okay, can we do something that somebody else can't do? Can we deliver something to the market that other people could do, but there's no business model to support it? So the original idea with the review, which is where we do all of our long form writing, that's now led by Jesse, who's, who's the incredible editor of the review, is just this, um, this idea that the best stuff about building companies can't be shared in a paragraph. It needs to be shared in thousands and thousands of words on any topic. But there's really not a great business model for that right now when sort of we launched it about five years ago. But hey, our business model is very different. So maybe we can do this and nobody else. And, and so th- there's sort of different ways to think about things in those different dimensions. Um, but, but there's also just following curiosity. I think we, we, one of the things I'm most proud of is when somebody has an idea for something, sometimes we just say, oh, that's kind of interesting. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And don't think about it too much and just sort of go – do it and see what happens. And a lot of the stuff that we've done over the years starts at point A and leads somebody like fundamentally different, but it's just sort of following the pull of something. But we have, I think, to the to that point about experimentation, like the way one of I think our core strengths and how we actually define where to focus yeah. is that ability to to take an insight from the founder and say, I'm I'm meeting this need in this one-off way. Is there some experiment that I could run that would teach me whether this could scale, be productized in some way, be available to many more members of our community? Or sometimes could the community deliver this to other members, to itself? Could the community sort of self-perpetuate this idea? And if we were able to model this behavior in some way, could could we then sort of scale that? And I think the... um, the fast track is a great, I mean, you should talk about that, but the fast track program around mentorship is, a, is an awesome example. I think of something that we saw founders doing around mentors and mentorship within companies and across companies. And then we were able to find a way to sort of bring that to a whole bunch of people, but it started with an experiment of, of a single, single person inside first round saying like, I think, I think I see something here. Here's how I would set up this experiment to test this hypothesis. And then when it starts working, then we're able to lean into right. it. Yeah. And I'm curious for the things that you that you killed, perhaps that are maybe just too ahead of their time or, or too early, or, or or maybe weren't a good idea. Uh, one I'm personally curious about is founder pooling. Uh, what did you learn in that project? Why didn't that quote unquote work out? As in, you, I'm understanding you didn't continue it. Do you think it's ahead of its time and it will be brought back in, in some form? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the so the the original idea 
came out of this idea that that VCs, one of the compelling things about a venture firm's business model is that it's highly diversified, or at least depending on the strategy, sort of fairly diversified. Yeah, VCs and, are diversified, founders aren't diversified. Right. And and not only not diversified, it's just like the the lack of diversification is like jaw dropping, right? You're in every every hour of your life. It, you know, most of your economic upside is sort of all tied to this one thing that's also phenomenally illiquid for like eight to 12 years if you kind of build something really meaningful and big. And so well, wouldn't it be interesting if people could sort of take a slice of their equity and pool it all together? And then in many years, you would sort of share in the upside. And so we had this idea, and this was sort of back, I think, in in 2008, 9, and 10. And, and Josh and I were kind of tinkering on this idea. And it, it came out of this early idea of how do you take something that's a network of anti-network effects business and make it a network effects business. And, and so like an, an interesting way to do that would be to create this economic engine that you could be a part of if you were part of this thing. And so we spent a lot of time work, starting to work on it and, and, and we had this idea. And, and so we, we pitched it to, uh, to all of our founders at our CEO summit, I think in, in 2009. And people loved the idea. It like totally resonated. We had this whole presentation about we had like these little uh, these little eggs, and we showed like the power of having all these eggs in a basket together, and and we sent an email around after, and all these people signed up, and so then we went to work on sort of creating the legal entity and structure and tax and sort of all the complexity that goes along with it. Kind of moved it forward, and in the process, we thought a lot about well, what are going to be the fundamental issues, and I think the number one issue is the adverse selection problem, where you might have the founders you know, quote, with the most challenging prospects, be most excited about being a part of this and, and, the, and the companies that were on a tear would be less interested in sort of, you know, diversifying. Uh, so we created all sorts of different ways to avoid that. Like uh, there were only a certain number of scenarios that you could join the pool a certain amount of time after we initially led the round and all sorts of other things to sort of put structural um, things in place so that there was sort of effectively, they, they really couldn't be adverse selection. And so we, we sort of went to launch it. And, and what we found is that everybody loved the idea in concept. And when you, when you actually, and everybody signed up and signed the LOI. And then when you reached out to people to transfer shares, a fraction of people wanted to do it that said they originally would. And so you start to get in that. And I, and I think some, some of it is, is the outlier nature of, of building venture back startups. So, you know, if you think about a, a, if, if you think about pulling all these assets together, you effectively are creating a synthetic venture fund. Yes. So you, you start to kind of poke at that and you say, okay, that means if, if we do you know, a pretty darn good job, we're going to 3x whatever the entry price is. If we do a very good job, we're going to 5x. And we want to like, if we want to do truly exceptional, we want to clear kind of like just a, an astonishing hurdle would be sort of a 10x. And so you start to do the psychology of that and you're like, okay, I'm putting at whatever fair market value, I forget it was at a 4NA or whatever the last round, or we came up with some methodology, the value of my you know, 5% that I'm putting in might five or 10x uh, versus if my company works, it's going to be a thousand X from where it is. And, and so there's some issue about even if for almost everyone, it would be a good investment. There's the difference between sort of, sort of, you know, whatever underlying reality or what the numbers would say and sort of the way that somebody feels. And so I, I think some of it is like Charlie Munger has this idea of, of liking the thing that you have irrationally. So, and so I think some of that comes up when you kind of give people the, um, the instructions to sort of transfer shares, but we ended up we ended up spending a ton of time and a ton of capital on it. We never even launched it um, because we just didn't want to do something that we didn't feel like was going to be successful. Do you think it will exist in some form at some, in soon, or do you think it's for the reasons you mentioned? Kind of, a, I think it's very do. challenging, and I think that the one of the big changes you've seen in the last five or so years is as a company starts to work, 
there is a reasonable secondary market. And once a company hits velo- you know, escape velocity, generally they're stapling primary and secondary together. And so there are more opportunities to take 5 or 10% of your position off, which is coming becoming much more mainstream and sort of how the late stage markets have evolved. And do you guys like that, by the way? Do you enable that? Do you encourage that? Do you Are you against that? Do you have a view on? No, I think, I mean, I think that oftentimes some amount of secondary allows a founder to continue to take the risk inherent in building a business sort of by nature for the first time and and to continue to push and to scale. I think the, when, when you start looking at not even so much the percentage of their ownership, I think, but just the amounts of wealth that comes off sometimes, I think it can, it can uh, create some perverse incentives or, or otherwise change the mindset of a given founder. But I think that for the most part, we're very supportive of founders doing something in the later stages where they're able to get some liquidity. And there's no reason that people should be, you know, living with tremendous stress and that the ups and downs of their company should flow over to the the overall economic well-being uh, of their their family and, totally. and so forth. Do, do you think, so there's other ways to get liquidity or other ways to, for founders to diversify, which we'll get into scouting in a second, but do you think it would ever work with employees, employee pooling? I think it's challenging when you actually look at what has to happen for any of it to be meaningful. And so I think the more and more you shrink your ownership position, the more and more challenging it becomes. And I think the, the odd thing about sort of any time you diversify is the people that are thrilled that they did it are in are in the situation where the company didn't work. And the people that are very frustrated that they did it are in the one that did work. And so I think human beings are just fundamentally rational about that. And in some ways, do you want to like create this employee pooling entity that all the most, quote, successful, high impact people and employees and companies or whatever felt like this was not a good idea? And the ones that like, there's just a lot of pragmatic issues that I think make it very hard. Sorry. So the, the biggest one for me is is one of the massive benefits that we talked about with the exchange fund was not so much diversification across a given cohort of companies, but across time. And so you'd say, okay, I'm a founder, I'm just starting, but I get a small piece of someone who's four years in and potentially is sort of headed towards an exit when I'm raising my Series A. And so now you start to get a little bit of time diversification in addition to spreading across multiple you know, equity slices from different companies. And so I think that the, the, the really hard thing about that is somebody has to start it. And it's one of those ideas that I think Similar to some other businesses where you would say, once everyone does it, it's a wonderful idea. But until everyone does it, uh, yeah, an existence proof, exactly. And so I think the getting and, and particularly to the problem of for people whose company is working, they're much less likely to want to jump in and participate. And those tend to be the more mature companies that are successful that you need to participate in order to draw everyone else in. And so I think you have this problem of the cold start problem totally. with this is tremendous. Yeah. My, my question, and I've been looking into like quadratic voting, quadratic finance. So maybe if, you know, there are mechanisms by which if all people agree, it would only happen of which if all people agreed in the first place. But I'm just interested in the broader question of would we have more founders if it was somehow less de-risked to be a founder? If founders could approach some of the, um, you know, portfolio diversification that VCs get or no. I don't know. I, mean, think I think, I think right now with I mean, in today's market with the access to capital that we've seen and the ability for people to to raise money, assuming access, which is a whole social question that we could get into. But but I think um, where there's lots of problems. But I think that for for the people who are starting companies today, access to the capital to start them and the ability to have a salary and the perception of risk, I think, is is on the on the lower end. 
Also, I think as there's more ups and downs and volatility in large companies, you know, you, you could say, okay, if I'm a technologist, I could go work for a division of a very large tech company or I could start a company. And in either case, you probably have two to three years of working on a certain problem before there might be changes that are outside your control. And so I actually think that the while the perception of risk for starting a company broadly across the economy is pretty high, I think for people who are in the startup world or in the broader Silicon Valley technology world, I think startups relative risk in starting a company versus um, being working at one is is not that great. And we actually see one of the challenges that we see in today's market is people believing that they can just start a company and then raising money before they've really done the work to define the company and the product and the customer. And I think not realizing some of the risks that that brings on in terms of once you raise money, kind of that you're now running at a target relative to when you decide you're going to explore an idea you have a tremendous amount of leeway and surface area to navigate in order to figure out where is where is the right. best opportunity. And do you do both? Do you invest in people who are, you know, hey, I don't even know my idea yet, or I'm I'm super early, I'm day zero, or do you typically invest in people? Hey, we know where we're going. We're now searching for, you know. Yeah. So so I think I think that companies have four stages, right? So there's, and we do well in two of them. So the first is the inspiration phase where you say, I'm going to leave. Google, Facebook, whatever, and I'm going to start a business and it's going to be in, you know, the healthcare space, yeah. right? And, and you're on a journey of discovery. And I actually think other than very specific angels with domain expertise, investors at that stage are usually not super helpful and probably force you to lock onto ideas before you're ready and force you to move forward when actually what you should be doing is broadening. Right? So they force you to go deeper when you should be broadening. And so that's at the inspiration phase. As, as you start to learn more about your market and you define your customer and you've sat with them and you understand their pain point and you understand the problem they have, the way it's currently being solved, the solution you can bring to market and how you would solve it. I think now you're in this aspiration phase where you kind of have defined your North Star and you don't know how you're going to get there. You may not even know the team that's going to help carry you there. And you probably haven't built a product that even starts you along that path, but you've set, you've identified, you've done the work to identify a North star. You understand the market, you understand the customer and you have some sense of the, the value you want to deliver and you have this aspiration. And I think that we are very, very good engaging with you there. As you work your way through the aspiration phase, you move from at the beginning, everything you do is net new. It's not repeatable. And in the Paul Graham parlance, it's the things that don't scale, right? And as you move through the aspiration phase, you start recognizing what works and what doesn't. And you're going through that build, break, learn cycle of product creation and of company creation and of evolution as a founder and growth. And at some point, you flip over into doing more things that are repeatable and marginally improving them to make them more efficient and fewer and fewer things that are net new to the business. And you move from aspiration to operation. And now you're trying to figure out that wash, rinse, repeat cycle and make your operation as efficient as possible. So to do fewer and fewer things, but create more and more value with high leverage. And we're very good as you evolve into that operation phase. And then I think once you have wash, rinse, repeat, or you you put a dollar in one end, you get a dollar plus X out the back. uh, That's when you're ready for scale. And, And that's we're probably not so good at that either. So I think in the in the early sort of journey of discovery, my view is investors aren't super helpful. Right. I think in the um, aspiration and operation phase, I think we can be tremendously helpful and you can get a lot of leverage from the community that we've built and the, yeah. and the way we think about helping you have the context necessary to make your best decisions. And then when it comes time for scale, 
you know, you have an engine that works and you just need to pour fuel into that engine. And, and I think there's lots of options for yeah. that. So you guys have built out this amazing platform, this, you know, 15 year run of, of great companies and great track record. Um, I think you're the best seed firm in, in market right now. My, my question, you guys have surely debated this. I'm, I'm curious where you netted out the, the, or why you didn't pursue these paths. So one is doing series A, you know, why, why couldn't you compete with, with some of the best firms out there? And the other, um, well, given their recent strategies, we do. <laughs> okay. Makes sense. Uh, moving early. The other is why not, uh, you already have this platform. Why not an accelerator? Um, we're doing 150K for 7% and you're doing many more companies and, and you scale out the platform, the network effects. You guys have stayed true to what you do, but why not besides focus, blah, 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 <laughs> which, which is true. But um, I'm curious how, how you've thought about those conversations. Yeah. I think, I think it for, for the team and, and as we talk about as a leadership team, the way we think about the product and the customer that we're serving has over time, I think we've built an understanding of that customer. And I think that we, we have a very specific point of view on the products that, that that customer needs and a way of delivering that value to them. And I think every time we look and say, should we, should we somehow broaden that? Should we move into this gap in the market or, or some other opportunity? We always think the trade-off between the value of focus, as you're saying, and sort of our ability to continue to deliver the product, continue to evolve, continue to experiment and make sure we don't become static in our core uh, versus the potential value in some of these other areas. That trade-off has so far has, has never been worth it. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, over the long course of first round as a firm and, yeah. and hopefully it's a, it's a perpetual institution that at some point there might not be other ways, but so far as we've looked, there's been so much opportunity within the core seed investing landscape and, and even more broadly just looking at early stage and how we can engage with a founder and build wonderful partnerships with them that sort of moving into different methods of product delivery yeah. haven't been appealing. I think a lot of it hinges on, uh, do we think we can be exceptional at something? And I think when we talk about different directions to go, the bar is pretty high. And I think you would see us change our strategy, widen the aperture even more, which which we have a lot in terms of if you look at the range of check sizes we write, that sort of dramatically changed from five years, even five years ago. Um, Five years years ago it was what? And now it's? Five years ago, I'd say the average check size was under a million dollars, maybe 750 or 800K, I think was on average. And our average check size, I think, is like $1.95 million. But the range in check size is, is, is what's sort of changed most dramatically. Certainly, the average has meaningfully changed, and that sort of companies are raising more. And I think in many ways, they're fundamentally raising more because the supply exists. Um, and so it's supply influencing demand than it is some profound thing has changed in terms of the, the needs of the customer. Um, but if you look at the range of checks, like we... The, the the franchise was named for a very specific reason. First round, it's people ask us like, well, where do you invest? And and so the for us, we we want to be the preferred partner of people that are just getting going. We want to be the best of the world at one thing. And so if you look at the range of checks, I'd say in the last year or two, we probably have written a five hundred or six hundred k check, or probably a couple four or five million dollar checks. And so the aperture has changed dramatically. But when we think about meaningfully changing like the customer we're serving, I think a lot of it is like, do we think we can be truly exceptional at something? And I think a lot of that comes through um, having a unique take or some level of invention. And so my sense is that if we were to start to do, if you see us do different things in the future, it would come out of some insight that we that we believe that if you look at Series A investor, where the gap is, what are the needs, there's a very specific new thing that could be provided. Or we have you know some point of view on why something could be really excellent. And I think 
we're you know we're we're, all, we're in search of those ideas and we're excited about those ideas, but until we have them, we tend to kind of focus on on yeah. on sort of the core. What's the thing you're watching? You know, I just saw or that you're closest to. I just saw that you guys did a Pakistani company. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it called? Airbus? Yeah, that's it's that is uh, they the company announced that, but we haven't announced okay. that yet. But yeah, <laughs> the company but, announced it. Yeah, um, is global an opportunity? You know, first round somewhere else. You know, I think I think that one. So so I think the broadly looking at international at uh, when Brett was just talking about the check size range from 500k which some people would call pre-seed to to 5 million dollars which yeah. classically was an A and really understanding where opportunity lies so far it's been the willingness to break the rules yeah. that we had in place for so long as the market has evolved yeah. and and firmly recognizing that we have focus but also recognizing that increasingly that makes us contrarian yep. in this market by staying focused on a, a single you know, early stage, having a, a single fund that does that and partnering with founders in a very specific way with a clear model that's understandable. You know, we, we engage early. We want to be the first institution yep. and the first call for those founders. We build 15, 18% ownership. We take our full pro rata in, in the next round and then we get diluted alongside the founder after that. Right. And and the math on that is very simple, which is we believe there'll be dilution going forward, sort of from the B and beyond, and that our goal is to own north of 10% of the business when there's an exit. And therefore, if the exit is more than $2 billion, it returns our fund and everybody's very happy, right? And so I think, I think that we have uh, increasingly looked for broader range of entry points, whether that's different markets or different, different um you know, evolutions of early stage companies with different capital needs. So from hardware companies to software companies is very different of someone who's going immediately into a heavy enterprise sales cycle versus somebody who's launching a consumer app. They all have very different needs. And what we didn't want to do was because of our rules around our business model, eliminate opportunity in the market for those founders who are, while they're raising 500K or they're raising 5 million, they're in that aspiration phase. Yeah. Of the company building, right? So, so they they have very different capital needs, but the companies actually at, at the atomic level, those companies yeah. look very similar. Even though one needs 500k to test an idea, and one needs five million dollars to build out a, a sales team and product such that they can test their idea. Totally, yeah, and, yeah. And I think what, what's really interesting about that, that that you've seen, I think, in a pretty pronounced way over the past couple of years, is if you look at an early stage seed round or, or whatever you want to call it. I think a lot of it in terms of are they going to raise a million, two or three is purely based on what the market will bear. It has nothing to do with the founder says, I need to do this to get to an inflection point or that. You know, sometimes that happens. But but we see founders on a regular basis that'll say I'm raising X and by the time the round is is done, they're raising three X. (laughs) We we see this sometimes in slide decks. Someone comes in to present to our partnership and they've been scheduled to come in on a Thursday and they were scheduled on (laughs) on Monday. And they come in and present, and the last slide says they're raising two. And they'll say, actually, since this week while I've been having these conversations, I'm now going to raise six. Wow. And, it's, and it's really being driven, as Brett was saying, by supply rather than, rather than demand. And I think one of the challenges there and something that, that we tend to focus on with founders, and we have practice in it around raising Series A, but now we're seeing it more and more at the, at the first round, is there's a third silent person in the room when – you as an entrepreneur and the VC market are negotiating terms. And that third person that doesn't have a voice is the company. And you need to, the best partnerships and the best investments are made when 
both the VC and the entrepreneur are are operating in the best interest of the company right. rather than the best interest of either business model right. on the VC side or some aspiration around, you know, whether it's valuation or round size or risk mitigation, right. as you were just talking about, right? Well, you raise more money, it feels like there's less risk. Actually, in many ways, there's more risk. Right. And the implication here is that you raise too much money, it sets you up for potential failure. If you don't meet your milestones, it's harder to raise the next round, maybe down round. I think that happens. I also think, I also think when you think about the things that make an entrepreneur really successful, we always talk about the pace of execution. But another thing we look at is the learning per dollar that they're able to generate and that ratio of learning per dollar spent. And when you raise more money, like we used to joke that when you, regardless of the size of your series B, it was 18 months, right? Until you had to raise again, regardless of how much you raised. But increasingly that's true at the seed. And so I think, yes, there's the chance that you raise more, therefore your valuation is higher and therefore you can't grow into it. It's much harder. But I also think part of what happens is you have bloat in your organization and you learn less per dollar spent you spend more dollars, so you may learn just as much. But when someone looks at your operating style and cadence and your pace of execution, they're comparing that to spending $5 million versus spending two. And if I, as a VC, know five other people who could learn just as much on $2 million, I might think that they're two and a half times better than you. Yeah. Right? And, and so it creates all these, these totally. challenges. There's an odd thing where I think that if you were to be able to say, okay, that the business to, to sort of execute in a scrappy aggressive sort of way the business needs a million and a half dollars to sort of prove out whatever set of experiments we want to i think there would be the ideal model would be raise 2x that so raise 3 million and don't change the way you're executing and because ultimately like running out of money is the existential thing that destroys all companies we can all agree on that the problem is for whatever reason almost no one is able to do that and it's 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 fascinating um but it's you know there was the old al gore thing we're going to put this money in a lockbox sort of joke um but can they do that actually i I haven't i i don't you know i companies that we partner with that raise two million dollars or 200 somehow in 18 to 24 months it's gone it's the same thing with us at at product time we we raised first we raised like 1.2 million dollars we're like man what are we going to do with 1.2 million dollars and then three months later six million dollars we're like Sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, just uh, like, what are we going to do with all this money? And so I'm curious, how, you know, and, uh, Josh, a uh, compliment from your team mentioned that, I remember you mentioned to me, like, uh, the companies have stayed the same, but prices have gone 3x bigger in, in the last decade. And so when do you as investors, when do you walk? When do you say, hey, I know this is 3x more than it should be, but, you know, if it's a, it's a winner, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, celebrating regardless. So wh- how do you think about it? When do you walk versus when do you eat it? Yeah, so well, I think it's, for it's, it? it's really challenging. And I think especially in this environment, there is this sort of boil the frog phenomena of, of hearing about and seeing rounds coming together for companies that are increasingly early and prices that are increasingly high. And you can always rationalize the, the price because the ideas and the visions of great founders are always a great investment. You know, at the time, especially at the early at the first round, it's it's just it's, it's the multiple you're going to capture if they are successful is, is just unbelievable. And so I think at the same time, though, I think price does matter. Like the idea that at seed price doesn't matter, you know, that means math doesn't matter. And, and an investment in Uber at a $5 million post versus a $15 million post is epic in either way, but it's one third as epic if it's, as if it's at 15. That's just the reality. And so for me, the way I think about price is try to think about it in a vacuum. So inside the room, at first round, founder presents, they leave, we talk about it. Without any outside influence, what's the price that we're comfortable with? Which has a lot to do with the way we think about the business and the opportunity and the risk. 
but doesn't involve the risk of the capital markets. It's just the, 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 the customer market and the opportunity for that business. And then try to say, okay, now what insight do I have to the founder's opportunity in the capital markets? And then looking at that gap and trying ultimately to get to a place with the founder where they are comfortable with the product that they're buying for their equity. And it's probably never going to be the lowest cost way for them to raise money when they partner with us. It's just not. But but the, but we believe, and we drink a lot of fresh round Kool Aid. But what we believe is what they get yeah. is also of the highest quality, totally. and therefore is, is and worth more. S- say more about what's. Hey, this company is more like a five post. This company is more like a ten post. This company is more like fifteen. Like, what are what differentiates in, you, in your view, like the type of risk that is like that is your framework for how investors should think about pricing? Yeah. So I think I think that there's you can you can look at guesses at market size. I think that's very hard to do, particularly at the first round. It's very hard to understand the ultimate market that people will will attack. I think a lot of time it really comes down to the founder and the progress that you believe they will make in the near term and the amount of control they have over those outcomes, meaning... Uh, are there a lot of dependencies and things that have to go right? Josh calls this domino rally companies where if if A, then B, then C, then D, and then you have a big business and where those A, B, C, and D are, are outside of your operational control uh, versus things that are that are in your control. I think there's also a sense of the founder's understanding of customer and their sense of product. And I think, I think also the founder's orientation around what's important in this business and are they prioritizing the things that you also believe will, will be the keys to understanding if there is value here. Because the, the other thing to remember is most of these companies don't become epic, you know, world-changing businesses. The thing you want to look for is someone who will open the door to learning whether or not this company can be yeah. a durable enterprise and that if it can, they can run through that gap and create that business. Right. And yeah. so, and so I think it's less about the five versus 10 versus 15, because that truthfully, I think comes down to how much dilution is a founder comfortable taking in exchange for partnering with the individual partner and the firm and the product and to join this community that yeah. that ultimately is, is the decision that the founder has to make. And they are trying to understand the value that we will offer to them and how we will accelerate their business, how we will help them see the larger opportunity that's hidden behind the local maxima, et cetera. But I think that the, the idea that you're willing to stretch as yeah. an investor has a lot to do with the confidence you have in the opportunity, but specifically meaning the founder's ability to scratch the surface and uncover the target-rich environments, and then go and 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 land a very large target within that. Everything that's sort of happened with WeWork lately. There's been more about sort of um, you know founder, company, investor. What other decisions do you you mentioned the third person in the or the invisible you know sort of entity in the room? What other decisions do you are very important to that third entity in the room that um, are important for you and the founder? As you mentioned, fund size. You mentioned valuation. Are there any others that come to mind that are really important? To get right early on, I think company culture is a huge one, right? And I think the the type of company that you want to build, uh, people talk a lot about that from a diversity perspective, which I think is critically important. But I also think just the the way decisions are made and is the place a a place where someone is making the decision unless there's data that proves otherwise, or is the place a best idea wins, much more egalitarian environment where 
uh, the best ideas come from wherever they come from. And then that person can be the champion of, of that project. Um, and, I, and I think there's a whole bunch of uh, are you optimizing for pace of execution and, and sort of the move fast and break things? Uh, or does the the market you're operating in require that actually you need to move fast, but you can't break anything? Right. And like like if you're building a, a healthcare company, that would be an example where you, you need to move fast, but you can't break anything. So so I think understanding the the culture that you need at the business. And I think the very, very best founders often do this from the point of view of like at some point, if I'm successful for personal or professional reasons along the way, I will likely step away from this business. This will not be my last job. Yeah. And what is the entity that I'm building and what is the decision making culture and the the day-to-day work culture and the way we interact with customers and regulators and so forth and so on in our market. And what do I believe sets up the business, the third person in the room for success. And today I'm the very best person to lead that business. And as long as I am, I will do so, but I want to make decisions that are optimized around bringing out the best in that whole team, but also doing what's best for that company in the market. Totally. And, and, and sort of you're getting at, a, at a, a, what is the essence of the things to look for that tend to lead to sort of outsized in, in you know, outsized outcomes? I, I, I think, and Finn was sort of getting at, getting at some of this, I, 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 I think the ability to, uh, to altitude shift as a CEO is generally pretty positively correlated with outsized success. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think humans tend to be, uh, you know, at, quite good at like high level strategy and vision and here's what we're going. And then or they tend to be very good at, at getting down to like the atomic level of what's going on in a business. Um, but oftentimes it's it's more rare that somebody can zoom in and out very, very effectively. And I think we've seen that people that are, are able to do that tend to be fairly positively correlated, I think, with, with, uh, with, with building really big outcomes. Yeah. And I think you, you see this in, they have this amazing knack to kind of zoom all the way out and tell you what's going on. Here's what we're building. Here's where all the little chess pieces are sort of out on the board. I see this very specific opportunity, this gap that we're going to go through. And here's how all these things are going to kind of uh, play out over the next couple of years. And then you can drop down and you can say, okay, you know, I noticed that the that you have sort of these three pricing tiers that you're starting out with. How did you land on that? And they could spend 20 minutes telling you the the methodology, even if even if they have no pricing experience, but the level of thoughtfulness in this in this one little piece over here, and then go all the way back out to to some sort of um, well, a few years out, what do you think if this works? What do you think the implications of that are? And they they can sort of paint this incredible story of what's going to happen. And I think more often than not, you see somebody that's stuck at a high altitude or stuck at a low altitude. And I'm sure you see this in meeting with a lot of founders. But you know, you could ask anything, and they can't help themselves but from getting down and confusing everything even more. Um, and so there's a magic of these people that can go up and down and get you really excited and tell you how all the you know what's going to happen in sort of the, the strategy that they're laying out and then go all the way down to some marketing email they sent out yesterday and why that, you know, performed or didn't perform. But I think, and I think the reason that that's indicative of, of potential for greatness in a founder is not only are they able to sort of go to the front, so to yeah. speak, and see, you know, be the feet on the street and go sit with customers and at the same time come all the way back and think about large strategy. Yeah. But the instinct to do that and to altitude shift as the company scales, the the quality of the information coming back from the edges of the business yeah. and their ability to interpret 
that information is so much higher because they have the ability to actually go and do that work and be focused on these very small granular details and then zoom all the way back out and remember how they fit into this larger puzzle. And so I think that someone who can do that at the earliest stages, they're raising their first round and thinking through how to tell the story to investors, to people that they're trying to get to partner with them, you know, early adopters of the product, et cetera, is also someone who, as the company scales from, you know, two to 10 to a thousand people is able to continue to visit the front and to be at the edge and then to come back into the mothership and then over the intervening months as they're getting information from the field they're able to act on it in a very different way than someone who doesn't have that ability to go back and forth totally i love that and and let's give some more examples of maybe some first round isms about company building you guys are sitting on you know 15 years of data about what great companies do and and how, how companies struggle you know, you mentioned Paul Graham earlier, you know, the famous, Paul Grahamisms are like build, you know, make something people want or, um, you know, do things that don't scale or, you know, just talk to your customers. What, what do you think are, you know, that was a perfect example of one perhaps, but what's another sort of first roundism or, or sort of thing that you guys have uniquely picked up about company building that you've seen in your portfolio that you make sure everyone knows? I mean, I think we talk a lot about experimentation and it flows through the way we operate first round, but it also, is something that we talk to founders about a lot. And when you think about experimentation, you're when you raise a round, you raise a venture round, you're out there to validate, de-risk, or disprove a hypothesis, and, and probably multiple hypotheses, right? And so finding the ways to identify those hypotheses, to understand not just, I think, minimum viable product, but something that people don't talk about enough is minimum viable failure. Like, how do you know when you've gone far enough that you've disproved something and you don't, you, you do, you do enough work to, to have the information that says this is disproven, right? We need to now move in a different direction. Not, not talking about pivoting the company, but in, in any little aspect of your business as you're building it. And is is there an easy framework of thinking about when, when you have failed enough or I think, I think what the thing that it's, it's different, you know, it always depends, right? Like anything, but I think that the people who are able to define success and failure for a given experiment that is time bound and specific have a much better chance of effectively identifying minimum viable failure and not falling into the trap of if I just do this, then I'll cross over into success and I'll have minimum viable product versus minimum viable failure. And so I think when we think about hypothesis testing and experimentation, that idea of time bound, very specific objective measures of what defines success or failure, or if there's a gray area in the middle, how do you identify that? And then where, what are the iterations that you're going to make on those experiments? I think that's something that we, we think about a lot. I think it's something, you know, it's built into our DNA, but it also it comes from the founders that we, that we serve. Totally. I think there's, there's a bunch. One that we talked about recently, one of, uh, one of our partners, Bill, sort of hammers on this. And, and it's the idea of, does the founder go deep? And I think that, um, you know, Finn was sort of mentioning this earlier, but I think for, you know, a certain category of founders, it's easier and easier to raise capital today um, in larger and larger amounts. And it used to be that the market forced you to do the work, right? So if you went back 15 years and you said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm leaving my startup and I'm interested in this area, that nobody would give you money. Yeah. And so um, and so because of that, the market forced you to go do work, deeply understand the customer, crystallize your insight, have the ability for 
someone at first trying to get together and ask you some questions and really drill in on an answer that is cogent and well thought out and grounded in 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 in, an, in a fundamental insight. And most insights are born out of doing work and doing the hard work. And now I think in the in the market, obviously, uh, depending on who you are and the general areas of interest, you don't have to do um, really any work to raise a million or two or three or four or five million dollars. And so, you know, we talk a lot about um, what is what is the work that this person has done and how deep have they gone and why do they believe this or why do they believe that? And I think that tends to be something that we spend a lot of time talking about. It doesn't mean that the business has to be validated or that there's traction. I, I still think a majority of the businesses that we have the opportunity to partner with tend to not have any real demonstrable data, product, whatever. Um, but if you ask somebody why, you know, you, you could sell this product at a million dollars a year, you're, you're choosing to go mid-market, so call it 200 to 300 person companies. Why? Yeah. And in that answer, you generally understand sort of how deep someone went, um, particularly if they haven't spent their whole career in that area. And... We, there's a lot of conversation if you come in and listen to our partner meeting about what is the quality of work and the amount of work that's been done. And, th- and sometimes you could do it in six weeks. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's something we spend a lot of time talking about and debating and, and discussing. And it leads, I think it leads to the unique insights that, that are not typically the light bulb that goes off and, oh, that's the answer, right? It's, it's not that. That's not what we're looking for. I think when we talk about founders doing the work, and going deep on a problem, it's about being able to structure and frame the very clear hypotheses, the data that they have gathered so far that are leading them to the conclusions that they're starting with, right? The assumptions that they're making, what underlies those assumptions. And then also the work that they will do post-financing to validate those assumptions and then build on them as a foundation for this larger vision. And I think that when you find founders who have not done that, and it's a, we're going to raise and then figure it out. The thing that, that we talk about is, so we're financing a journey of discovery around this, this market or around this problem. And the temptation, we're just talking about lockboxes, the temptation yeah. to identify the first, what seems like an MVP and unlock the lockbox and dump a ton of money on it is really significant, right? And, and so much better to have someone who understands This is the market I'm going after. This is why I'm making these assumptions. Here's what I've gathered so far. I'm objective and cognizant that I could be totally wrong, but these are the experiments I'm going to run to test these hypotheses. And I know that some of them will be right and some will be wrong. And the ones that are right, this is how I'm going to build on them. And this is where I'm going to sort of navigate my way towards that that North Star. So so we have some co-investments in common, uh, Village Global and First Round. We have Airbase. We have Osseum, uh, Data Gravity, which you did. And uh, a mutual friend uh, and a company that you guys backed, we would have if we had been up by then, uh, is Modern Fertility. And Afton remarked that you, Finn, um, weren't an expert in the category when you first met, and then you became an expert very quickly. Uh, so, And you have to do that for lots of different companies. Do you have a framework for understanding a market or getting up speed in a market really quickly? Yeah. So the first thing, the first thing I tend to do, so first I enjoy that work. Like I think my background is consumer and, and I think that to be good at consumer, one of the things you have to do is to be schizophrenic and be able to be the customer and, and have tons of empathy for that customer. And so anytime I meet a founder who's working in a space that I don't understand. So whether it was learning about 
the the fertility uh, space and generally reproductive health with with Afton or or other examples around you know synthetic biology or trying to understand crypto etc. These every time I think the the very first thing I do is I try to take either a sentence that the founder has laid out in, in an early conversation that talks about what they're going to do and why, and as best I can Google that sentence yeah. and just see who else is talking about that. What other companies are playing on those types of words? And are there research reports? Are there other experts? Academia is a great source. Yeah. And just try to understand the broadest possible landscape around the vision that the founder has. And so for Afton, she talked about the, the fundamental insight she had from, and this is someone who definitely had done the work, like Afton, you know her, is, is one of the most intense women uh, and founders I've ever met. Like she's amazing. And she came from this space in private equity where she was working on rolling up fertility clinics. And so she deeply understood the economic model of a small piece of the healthcare landscape for women. And she started to see every time she pulled the thread how, how it was broken and how it didn't fit together. And what she came to, she was able to boil all this information down into a, a single sentence, which was, which was basically summed up as women don't have access to the data and information they need to make their best decisions at the time they should be making those decisions. And in general, healthcare in the United States anyway, when it comes to reproductive health and fertility, is an infertility system, not a fertility system. And so the answer that women were getting from their doctors when they came and said they want to talk about fertility was the first question was, yeah, yeah, but how long have you been trying to have a baby? And if the answer from, was, no, I'm, I'm just thinking about it. Was, oh, don't worry about it. Are you under 35? Okay, just keep going. And so she said that, and I thought that seemed crazy to me that that was actually the case. And and I didn't have any personal experience, obviously, in dealing with that. And so started pulling back that thread and, and Googling and reading online about how people think about infertility and fertility and then finding experts and companies and then start making phone calls. And it turns out if you're the letters after the at in your email address or firstround.com, people will answer your emails. And so from academics to investors on the private equity side to some CEOs of fertility clinics and then into the medical area with some doctors who are working with, with women on this. And it became very, very clear first that that insight was correct, that it was there were tests available to get this information, but those tests, standard of care did not allow those tests to be prescribed yeah. when a woman had not been trying to conceive for some period of time. And, and so that, from that insight, then starting to learn about the economics of that model and understanding the way that care should be delivered, then going deep on the science around the dry blood spot tests yeah. that, that Afton was proposing and then understanding um, the way she was thinking about the market. And I think, and I think whenever you do that, there's, there's sort of this um, parallel thread that you're pulling. So you're doing your own independent research and then constantly weaving that back together with the founder and what they're saying. And I think most founders that I've worked with who are able to help me navigate that learning curve, the very steep learning curve, they are able to describe very clearly what they've, the conclusions that they've made. They're also able to surface the information, data, and sources that they use to come to those conclusions. And so then I can marry sort of their data pool with mine and come to my own conclusion and see if we, if we agree, if I think that the way they're thinking about the business is, well, is the same. What's interesting about that is, that, is I think a lot of this, the conversations we have are, are, are trying to really get at what is the fundamental insight. And I think at times it's actually harder. Like it's very easy to confuse X for Y. And I think I was reading this uh, this interview with Brian Grazer, and he was uh, sort of this 
you know, this, this incredible career of creating blockbuster movies. And he was saying, you know, all along my career, a lot of people think because I've had so much success that anytime I come up with an idea or I work with a director or what have you, everybody just gives me money to do all the things that I want. And he goes, still to this day, it's hard to raise money for a lot of the ideas. And he was sort of, and then sort of he's being asked, well, why is that? And he sort of got to, I, I think people often don't see what I see and they misinterpret what this whole story and narrative is all about. And he said, you know, a long time ago, I was raising money for this movie Splash, which was about a mermaid and whatever. And he said, you know, what I noticed is why it was so hard to raise money for the movie is every time I pitched it, the executive would say, you know, nobody cares about a movie about a fish. This doesn't make any sense. And he goes, what they didn't understand was this is a love story reinvented and told in a different way. And I think like that's a fun, like that's, that's a misunderstanding about what this whole thing is all about and what the fundamental insight is. And I think when you, when you're, when you're spending time talking to founders and hearing them tell their stories, it can be, it can be very easy to say, Oh, I think this is about, you know, making this thing cheaper or what have you, but it's actually about creating a whole new category or, or there's so many things that, you know, it's easy to think it's a story about a fish when ultimately it's really a love story or something much more profound or sort of what have you. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think you were asking about superpowers before, and I think the the promise to at least try yeah. to see what you see, right? Yeah. So as an investor listening to a founder's story, I will see what you see yeah. and then walk away from that conversation and then think, in order for that vision to come true, what do I have to believe? Yeah. And now let me go and see if I can be convinced and learn those things and believe those things could be true such that I too see what you see. Yeah. Right. And then you have a partnership. Totally. So, uh, one thing you guys innovated on recently, which we really admire at village is the angel track, um, sort of this accelerator community like experience for angels where you bring them in and you educate them and you create community amongst them. Uh, as far as I understand, you guys don't have a scout program necessarily, or you don't plan to back micro funds. How do you view when the Scout Microfund ecosystem? You know, all operators are becoming angels, and 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 your own angel track. You, know, I, mean, I assume the strategy there is, hey, build relations with great angels, and now they're going to want to partner with first round and bring deals first round and get back to the ecosystem. How do you view some of these topics I'm bringing up? Well, I, I think a, a lot of the stuff that we do are kind of grounded in a lot of the, and I, we can kind of talk about this in in sort of two pieces, maybe more about how that thing came about, and then sort of adjacently maybe talk about what's going on in terms of scouts and uh, new fund managers and sort of what have you. But I think a lot of the stuff that we do is often oriented around sort of like remixing the same set of ingredients. And a lot of the stuff that that we sort of see as a through line between all the different things that we do really orients around like ideas, knowledge, information, and relationships in human beings. And when you look at what we're doing with network and software and what we're doing with fast track, which is something that Finn was mentioning that this sort of the scaled mentorship program, you look at all these different things, they generally oriented around like information and relationships. And, you know, some of it is actually inspired by higher ed and, and something we sort of Finn and I spend a lot of time talking about is, you know, GSB and HBL, it's, it's a fascinating thing when you look at like, what are these institutions? And you kind of generally boil it down into, it's sort of this very small set of ingredients that's sort of packaged up, right? One is a credential. So, you know, I went to Stanford and it means X or it did mean X or it means Y today or sort of what have you. 
you generally have some content portion. You learn managerial accounting. You learn, you know, you go to touchy-feely. You do sort of whatever. And then you have the sense of community. Um, and this, the, you know, not only did I meet new people and network or what have you, but, but the magic I actually think is if you, is if you look at somebody that goes to business school and you look five years later at their wedding, there's like three tables of people that would have not been a part of their life had they not sort of gone and been a part of this thing. And so they basically take in these, these three elements and kind of put them together and deliver them in a certain way that has unlocked both tremendous value for the people that ha- have been a part of it, but certainly the institution is like unbelievable, the, the sort of scale that has, has sort of come out from those sort of three things. And I think a lot of the stuff that we do is tends to be organized around that. And some of the angel track stuff started with this, this idea that we, we sort of started to think about, you know, how do you create more opportunities for people to, build new relationships in very deep way? How do you create new opportunities for people to learn new things? And how do you create new opportunities for credentials? And a lot of ways, like venture firms are in the credentialing business, right? Firm X invested in my business. And so long before my business has any traction, it's like, oh, this smart person, this credentialing agency said you're really smart and you're really great. And so you should join my company, even though we have no product, we have no this, we have no that. And and so venture firms, in in essence, certainly the best venture firms are credentials, um, but the surface area of that credential is like phenomenally small. They invest in X number of companies in any given year. Um, and so is there the opportunity to sort of create uh, a credential that's not only just tied to investing in a given company? And so we started to work on this idea for a product program because um, we were at a salon, which are these small dinner formats that we hold in New York. And one of the people there was a VP of product at, at a startup that was about three or 400 people. And she was saying that, you know, in New York, I feel like there aren't the APM programs and a level of investment in young product talent in New York that there is in the Bay Area. And I feel like a, a, somebody that's not at a given company should create this experience that could bring young product people together that can share new ideas, a curriculum, and ultimately sort of accelerate their career. And so we we did that for 16 product managers in New York. And it was incredibly interesting. One of the most interesting things were you started to see people that were a part of it get new opportunities through the other people in the program. And you started to see sort of on their Slack channel people being invited to weddings or to go to this engagement party or, you know, you started to see some really interesting things. And so as we've been spending a lot of time thinking about um, what are the opportunities to to educate new investors, to build new relationships, a lot of it sort of came out of those kind of sets of ingredients and kind of remixing them and repackaging them for uh, Angel Track, and that's sort of what what Finn spent a bunch of time on with yeah. Ben and others and, on our team. And, and yeah, I think with with Angel Track, the the power of a group of people coming together to both learn from and offer their insight and teaching to others is just this amazing thing, particularly around something that's kind of you know a, like viewed as some sort of dark art, like angel investing, you know, it's, it's unknown how you get access to the best opportunities. And, you know, if you're someone who's typically been an advisor to your friends, how do you then ask them, well, you know, I'd love to invest in your company. And how do you cross that line? And, and how do you think about an opportunity or a market that you've never looked at before? Like we were just talking about with, with fertility, right? How do you do that? And so I think the idea that we could bring together a group of people who have from zero to a little bit, of angel investing experience and put them in the room together, get content brought into them from the very best 
in the angel investing, you know, world. So we've had, we have partners from first round will speak. We've had Elad Gill speak. We've had Keith speak. You know, we've had hashtag angels speak on and on. And, and I think that they're able to provide a point of view and the way they think about the landscape. But then most importantly, we give the, the group of that's in angel track, the opportunity to talk about what they just learned and then also to talk about investment opportunities together. And so there is a period of time at every angel track where people will talk about the interesting things that they're seeing and get feedback. And when you look across the backgrounds and the experiences of all the people in the room, but then also now we're seeing crossover between cohorts of angel tracks. So now across the entire angel track community, it is basically 99% sure that if you want to talk to someone who has expertise around a given company you're looking at, they exist within angel track. And so now you have the ability to reach out to someone who works in a company that operates in a similar space, an adjacent space, or a competitive company, and ask them what they think about this opportunity that you're looking at. And and then also you have people who, you know, they have they've made investments, they understand what to look for in founders, they're talking through that. And you get to do this, um, the repetitions that you get, the value of those repetitions as a member, a productive member of that group is so high, right? It might not be quite as good as, okay, now I'm going to write a check and the commitment and then the support afterwards. But I think the opportunity, particularly on the decision-making side and thinking through strategies to access founders as well as to support founders after investment is something that having this group together and they can all feed off of each other and talk about things in a very open way has been really, really powerful. Yeah. In in closing, um, I want to ask you guys about the future of first round. So, you know, we've said first round, you know, been 15 years. I'm curious, you know, 10 years from now, what is it possible that first round could look like? And, and you guys have, you know, there's been some generation, generational transition. You know, Howard, one of the founders of the firm is no longer with, with the firm. As, uh, uh, you know, the original partner is getting older. Um, you know, you guys aren't super spry. Um, <laughs> I'm just giving how, how what's your sort of unique framework for generational transition? And how do you think about, you know, first round 10 years from now, 15 years from now? I think, I mean, I think one of the core pieces to first round and the way we operate is the team dynamic that we have. Right? So we recognize the importance of team and we recognize the importance of brand in this business. Obviously, there's a tremendous role of luck, but I think uh, all of us as partners are relatively humble when it comes to how we happen to make a certain investment, both as a firm and as individuals. I think we recognize the value that others bring to that conversation, uh, the the way that one conversation with a partner shapes the way you think about your next meeting with an entrepreneur and makes you more or less excited. And and I think that the the very core of first round is a, a fundamental spirit of teamwork and and recognizing that the you know the the group is much, much more powerful than sort of the sum of the, of the parts. Right. And, and I think that that is what enables strength in whether you call it generational transition or evolution of a team, even talking about potentially entering other markets or, or building other products. I think all of that sort of is rooted in this idea of a model that doesn't have attribution that you, you understand that you're going to contribute to the, the benefit of first round and I think fundamentally the the very, very long-term view of every decision that we make. And so we don't, I think one of our core advantages in in the market as a, as a venture capital firm is this long-term orientation and the willingness to invest in 
products and services that support founders, but also in investment areas and, and opportunities that will pay off over a very, very long term and be comfortable with that as a team and to know that we all support each other in those efforts. And I think that that orientation will, will allow for um, high quality to continue regardless of the players you know, on the field, but also will fundamentally attract the right type of people to come in to the firm who have that same orientation because it's a pretty specific operating model and something that I think we pride ourselves on and, and has been critical to our success so far. My guests today have been Finn Barnes and Brett Burson. First round, uh, we at Village Global have been immensely inspired by what you guys have done and grateful that we've uh, been able to team up and, and hope to do more. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and the work that you both do. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Eric. It was great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 